0: Um okay, are we good? I'm good. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Jessica J. Sawson here for Town Culture joining you from my home in Toronto, Canada. And uh, I'm glad you guys are all here with watching uh, this special webcast for um, well, it can be a tough conversation. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it can be a tough conversation. But I think, nonetheless, it's a necessary conversation that we as individuals need to be having, and particularly uh, us as members of the Tamil community out in the diaspora, need to be having. So, what are we talking about? We are talking about Black Lives Matter. Uh, I don't think you can scroll through your social media feed and not see it. Um, we're talking about the statement that that's. Cause of some controversy for controversy for certain people, the social movement, the systemic, institutional, psychological revolution that Black Lives Matter has become for all of us. Um, which you know, basically, what it is for the viewers at home is basically, I think, if I could categorize it broadly, it's an attack on every facet of systemic anti-Black racism in Canadian society, um, from our healthcare system, education. Uh, police interactions with the black community, um, and also in our own hearts and minds, those comments that we let pass in our own homes, with our friends, uh, and in our culture. Um, So it's really about coming around uh, to that realization that we've permitted quite a bit, I think, um, in terms of our own anti-black racism. Um, And I think for all of us here, Uh, at least for me, it's been a week of immense discomfort, a few weeks of immense discomfort, just sitting with my own realizations, my own hard truths. Um, And I think that personal reflection is good, but I'd much rather just chat it out with you guys um, and and check myself a little and hopefully check all our understandings about a topic as big as this. Because I think um, that's really how we're going to come to an understanding as a community about it. So, to that effect, I have three fellow humans with me and fellow Tamil Canadians with me today for what I hope can be a little period of virtual reflection for all of us. Um, I won't be surprised if our viewers at home know all of you, you're kind of familiar names, I think, but I'm going to introduce you all uh, just in case people don't know who you are and maybe you guys can just give a, uh, a wave to the camera uh, so everybody knows who's who. All right, so first up, uh, you've probably caught him on CTV News, you probably caught him critiquing the latest film release or interviewing your favourite celeb. We have Radegan, Simon Pillet, film critic and culture writer for CTV and now Magazine. Brad.
1: Hey, how's welcome. it going?
0: It's going. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on this conversation? Your preliminary thoughts
1: briefly. Oh, we're just gonna dive right into that.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, I just to ask you <laughs> like what, you know, your intention, your what's your feeling right now as we, as we get into this?
1: There's just so many feelings though, right? Like, okay, so I mean I guess for me, like I am here to listen. A lot of the times when I, I mean, like you you like you said, I work at CTV. I'm surrounded by, you know, people like Tyrone Edwards who had a really emotional emotional moment when he processed this. I don't know if you saw, he broke down and cried, cried on the social, trying to just to get his express his feelings. We've had. A shitload of stuff happening over there uh you know they had a special with anti-black racism and they had some shit that complicated that special and i mean i don't want to get into that because uh, i just don't know where to land on that stuff but um but i mean like i've just been like i've been listening i've been observing i wrote i tried to do my best writing a story uh for, and now, magazine about policing and anti Black racism and how how all of this just affects Black people's mental health. Whether you are, I mean, like whether I mean, just in terms of being. A black person having to see these headlines. How does that, that how does that affect your sense of self worth? How does that affect of your relationship with the world? Uh, I tried to explore that in that piece. That's that was my end. And then after that, I just needed to pull myself back. I took I'm taking like a month off vacation from Now Magazine right now, just because it's all just too heavy for me. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm here to listen. And then I'm here to I am, I'm I am observing brown people and I'm uh, Tamil people, South Asian people, whatever we are. And even if it's white people, like we got to stop trying to center ourselves in these conversations. I think that's something we're going to try and unpack as we get along, as we go on with this.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, you're right. I don't think any of us really know um, what it's like to go day in and day out, having to consider what my day is going to be like, mm-hmm. having to walk around with that. I think, I think us as as a town community, we, we might know that in a past life, but I don't think we really know that life here in the West, mm-hmm. right? So that's really been sitting with me because, despite what a discomfort I might be feeling. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing compared to what our black friends and colleagues are going through. Uh, I'm definitely with you on that. Um, all right. So next up with us, we have someone who's no stranger to panels about topics. Uh, she provided her insights on TBO's agenda and CBC. We have Rashani Vigaraja, Ontario Public Servant and Chair of Towns and Public Service. Roche, how's it <laughs> what's on your mind? What's been what's right. on your mind these past few weeks?
2: Oh, man. Um definitely a lot of honest, uncomfortable introspection, you know, this is in different levels. So there's like an individual level, there's, you know, myself as a public servant. And then what that means for, you know, the community work that I'm doing within the family community as well. So there's like different roles, uh, uh, involved and all coming back to a sense of personal responsibility. Right. Um, so, you know, being a public servant, you know, there's this quote that I saw, um, acknowledging you are a part of a racist machine is not easy. And that's what I've been thinking about a lot, honestly, uh, working for the provincial bureaucracy, because I am a part of the system. I have a role in it. And, you know, every so often uh, before these series of events that, were, that took place, um, and now during and, and following, I, I, I like to check myself, you know, to see... Um, my role within the government might make me complicit to the ways in which the system reinforce- and reinforces things like anti-black racism, colonialism—you uh, name it—all the all the forms of oppressions that that we've seen government historically and to this day kind of um, acting out on. So, to an extent, I know that my role does make me complicit a little bit, but. Um, as much as I try to be that sort of systems navigator that seeks to add my perspective and challenge when necessary and be that person that calls it out, uh, I am complicit in some ways, uh, especially being in like the minister, ministry of the Solicitor General. Um, for those you that are familiar, that involves overseeing corrections and public safety and community safety. Um, it's also the home of the anti-racism directorate. So, um, you know, being a racialized woman, that strongly values change for the better, for the most marginalized in our society, whether it be the Dumblet community or beyond that, in the true sense of the term vallyship, you know, I have a personal responsibility and a decision to make almost daily. Uh, you know, do I sit back and keep quiet because it's the easier thing to do and, you know, for the for the benefit of my career, maybe, or do I speak up and challenge things and, and face whatever I face uh, in doing that, so you know, going back to work was unsettling to say the least. Uh,
0: seeing
2: how sometimes uh, you know things seemingly were business as usual, um, but it meant that I had to step up and I had to have a conversation with my boss, with my team, other members of you know, like uh, people that I work with, and what are some concrete actions that we're going to take? You know, like there's my own personal feelings and the emotions that I had to sit with. But um, it immediately turned into like, okay, it's time for action. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to hold ourselves accountable? And you know, and more, most importantly, how are we going to sustain whatever momentum that is to ensure that you know Black Lives Matter isn't just like the flavor of the month, right? So. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Definitely. Whew. Yeah, I think uh, we're just all coming to realize that if we didn't know it before it's like it's really in our face now that yeah we were part of this system we contributed it. So we played along to this we played along uh, and it's i think a lot of it's because we didn't want to disrupt the sense of comfort that was benefiting us to some extent so hard truths right yeah. um yeah all right our last friend on the panel uh you already know who he is if you were among the best friends earlier today like i was uh, we have sean vincent paul Recording arts and director based in Toronto, who's been shaking up the music scene <laughs> in Toronto and worldwide, just having done a tour in India. Um, well, is. How, how is it coming back to from India to this?
3: Oh man, I think we uh we left just as uh, COVID started, where like quarantine started. So we were we made the cut by a, a week, so we were pretty lucky actually in terms of just traveling and tour.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, but yeah terms of what's going on right now it's we're living in a very important moment right now and uh i think for me this one like rad was saying is a lot of listening a lot of listening to the black community and letting them lead the conversation that's important to me um and i think for me it's been how could i contribute purposefully and honestly in this fight You know, I have made a career out of black music and black culture. Um, So I'm in this, I feel uh, maybe more of a responsibility than the average Tamil person um, right now, just because it's been my livelihood. So there's like, I think for anybody that's participated in the black community, in the black space, there is a certain debt that we do owe. And I feel like, how could we continue to participate within this culture? Um, and yeah, just questioning our our community's role, because when you think about how we were brought up and our uh, a lot of Tamil people's perspective and views on the Black community it was always one that was either fear or admiration, but rarely respect. And that made me think, like, how now. Where are we as a community, and how can we contribute in what's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's
1: so yes. well put. Fear and admiration, but rarely respect. I think that kind of nails it. Just fucking end the podcast now.
0: <laughs> I think we covered it, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Like... <laughs> All
0: right. Um, no, I think yeah, you nailed it really with that. I think I feel like the Tamil community in Toronto, um, maybe in particular, but maybe in general, has a really a really interesting relationship with the Black community here, and I think sure. because you know we have a really complicated racial identity here in Toronto. I think you know we're we're yeah we're South Asian, um, sure, but we're not Basie in the in the way that I don't think Indian people or uh, or other South Asians intended us to be. I think I think we also inherently know that in the South Asian racial ladder, Tamil people are not. We're kind of at the bottom, and a lot of it has right. to do with the color of our skin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how inherently, despite that, despite knowing that, we somehow know that in the in the bigger racial ladder, we're a, at least one rung higher than black people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like I think it, it's, it's showing it for me when I reflect on my experiences, you know, growing up in Toronto. Um, you know, I didn't really, I couldn't really identify as a Desi person or a South Asian. Those, that, that wasn't my jam. Um, I'm definitely not white, and black culture and black music, black music, has been the soundtrack to my life, you know, it really has, it's been, it's, it's spoken to me in this way, and and I've, and I've gotten a lot of value and joy and comfort from it, um, without realizing that I might have been just consuming it without really understanding or really caring about the experiences of those people, um, but yeah, I wonder what, what your individual relationship with the black community has been like, you know, growing up here.
1: Um, Brad, why don't we start with you? Well, fuck. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I, I'm almost scared to talk about this. So, like, okay, so I grew up in Tuxedo Court, right? Um, I grew up in Tuxedo Court in the '80s, and they were like starting from the mid '80s going forward. Um, uh, going and, and like, so the thing about Tuxedo Court is, I mean, right now if you go back there, it's all Pakistani and stuff, people. But when I was growing up, it was me, maybe two other Tamil families, maybe. And it was all black West Indian whatnot people, and we went to school. It's a, a, school, a elementary school called St. Thomas More. So for me, like that was my like. So like, here's the thing. Like I'm growing up, I could be discriminated against by white people, and I could just be discriminated against by black people because I'm neither, right? Um, especially when you are the only Tamil in that neighborhood. But in the end, you choose a side. And, of course, you choose the black people because they are the ones. First of all, theres I mean, you know how they talk about racial passing uh, yeah. where, like, you know, it's like certain mixed color black people could pass as white. Well, I was a Tamil guy that could sometimes, you know, as soon as you get rid of that big th- 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 thick head of hair, you trim it down. I was able people thought I was Jamaican or trainee or whatnot. So I, there was like so if I'm hanging out with them, that's who I identified with. In fact, so I grew up with a lot of self-hate. Like, and I'm only admitting this now as a fucking 40 year old, almost old. I'm not 40 yet. I'm not, I'm not, I am not age myself, but yeah, like, but, um, I think I grew up with a lot of self hate and I wanted to identify with that community, but of course I can't identify with the experience of that community. And I look at, the, I, I, you know, I, I say that now because I, I look at all the things that benefited me and benefit like basically all the friends I grew up with back then, those friends I'm talking about, those childhood friends that are black, they ended up in prison. Right, so my childhood friends, like one of them, you know, for stealing cars, ended up going to this kind of juvie. Got moved away here. Another one went over there, and I, so I, me being the only one that had both parents and both families, and not this history of trauma, we had a very different type of trauma, but not that trauma. I succeeded in a way that those friends didn't. Um, so uh, that was that experience. So there was, I mean, and we, but when you talk about that complicated relationship where. You know, we both have this affection for black culture, but we could also be discriminated against. I mean, I don't know how Shan—I don't know how old y'all are—but Shan, I think, is the only one that might might vaguely remember this. The Tamil gangs that popped up in the mid '90s—we're talking about like that AKBVT stuff. A lot of those gangs popped up. One of the things that that predicated them popping up was a certain hostility against other black gangs. It was like you know we the like if you think about Tamil gangs grew up in Malvern, Warnell Court, Tuxedo Court, and then on the West End like Jana Fitch area, and so it was almost them them collectively eh, like forming together in antagon, in an antagonism against those groups, right? So you have to remember that in our little history like so these Tamil gangs and these guys and these dudes would love reggae music would be bumping that simsima all you know like out of their civics and all that shit but at the same time they would also have a certain hate and an animosity towards those people so like you know like I had this is what I mean this is, I you know I feel like I should be shutting up right now but there's a lot of complicated feelings that come with that like so like uh it just in terms of What is our relationship to the culture? Do we like? Are these people are our friends, or are we gonna like? Are we like? Are we fair weather friends? You know, like, uh, and I think that's what the Tamil. I think that's what it is. I think the Tamil community can be fair weather friends when it comes to their relationship with the Black community.
3: Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Could could you uh, just to chime in on that, right?
1: Could
3: Could you not say it's aside from the Tamil community? That's a small mirror of our world, that's how we treat black people is we take, 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 mm-hmm. we take culture, we take style, we take slang, we take music, we take food, we take aesthetic, everything we take. But when it's time to give or show up, mm-hmm. nobody's there to show up. And now we're seeing this paradigm shift of people being, a lot of people are showing up out of sheer guilt. I don't right. give a shit. Show up now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know
3: yeah. What I mean? it's, it, it, And I feel like, that is a mirror it's like that's us but I feel like that's just a larger society it's just it's essentially black culture is always pillaged but nobody is there to return anything you do what I mean what's the contribution now
1: yeah 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 can I uh, so like sorry bounce back on that Uh, I don't know if y'all listened to a podcast we did recently about Lily Singh Mm, and her relationship are we we gonna get into Lily Singh today is like is that (laughs) is that something we're gonna talk about later on or should we just jump right into that now huh
0: you can get to it now that's
1: us uh, no but i mean i think so like it's interesting because she's so emblematic of us as brown people right like she like and like 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 she doesn't even listen to the criticism from the black community where you know this girl puts on that patois accent. she puts it she goes out to like you know she makes she makes she profits off these videos uh i mean so the most recent we did the podcast on lily singh and now magazine me and uh some black women as well as the punjab woman about after lily singh put out a video where she remixed ding Dong's um, like oh, yeah. that song too, 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 yeah. Like, and and once again, doing the Patois thing that she's already been criticized about. In fact, and she she can't deny that she's been criticized about it because I fucking personally I brought it to her face and I said, hey. <laughs> like, you know, like I, ta- I interviewed her and I'm like, yo, like, what do you got to say about this? Because, you know, you're, you're, you're like people have words to say. So she knows about the criticism and she still insists on doing it. So that's what that's one your, thing. What was your response when you mentioned the She's like, oh, you know, the Scarborough. She was, I was like, OK, yeah, I know you're going to tell me the Scarborough thing. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, like yeah. if people if people knew what it was like to grow up a Scarborough, if people really knew where we came from, I think they wouldn't criticize. She kind of generalized it like that. Right. Um, which, by the way. Because when when Lily Singh br- brings up the Scarborough argument, I was like, okay, first of all, like, I mean, I think yeah, you you had your time in Scarborough, but look at your crew right now, right? Like, I don't see any black people in your entourage. You you had an, she had an entourage when I interviewed her. None of them were black. Um, that's that's a that's an aside. But the thing about the Lily Singh thing, so she gets this criticism, and she she did what what Shan described to a T. She takes and takes and takes and takes, and then you got to ask when does she give back, right? When this all this stuff started going down with the George Floyd thing, um, uh, like all the, the with uh, the Black Lives Matters conversation, when it has been renewed, Lily Singh put out a post on Instagram, and. Her post had the longest preface ever. Before getting into the Black Lives Matter argument, it had the longest preface ever about I am Lily Singh and some people criticize me for wanting to support and some people criticize me about how I... So she made this post. Half of this post was all about her and her struggle coming out and speaking out for the Black community. So once again, she centered herself in a post where she's supposedly trying to be an ally for the black community, so and that's that's what I'm seeing. That's that that's I think the, she's basically emblematic of a lot of us who will take yeah. this opportunity that would take this opportunity to talk about racism, talk about discrimination, talk about oppression, and then try and recenter for ourselves. It's like, oh yeah, yeah by the way, remember we are that too. It's like it's not our moment, you know?
0: I'm I'm glad you brought that up um, because uh, Roche, I think you know you and I have talked about this too. It seems like there's two conversations happening right now, right? There's there's one addressing. The one that's affecting Black people's lives, which is police brutality and the rate of violence and death in um, police interactions with the Black community. Uh, you know, the fact that we shrug our shoulders at a statistic that says that Black men are 20 times more likely to die in the city of Toronto at the hands of police, and we just say, eh, "It's a problem for the Black community." Um, that's kind of, that's just shocking to me now in hindsight. But I did it too, right? But anyway, you know, there's one conversation to be had around that. Um, and, and dismantling those systems. But we're also having a conversation about anti black racism in our communities. We're, we're, we're being asked to reflect as, as communities, for example, the Tamil community, about anti black racism uh, in our own community. So, I mean, Roche, I feel like I don't even need to ask the question, but is there anti black racism in the Tamil community? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, and the, these, all these, and there's been a lot of conversations, you know, uh, you may see on social media about, you know, the role of the Tamil community and uh, in all of this, and in some ways, we are both the victims and the perpetrators of anti-black racism. Um, we can see how the community is starting to take more of a personal responsibility, um, for how we contribute to anti-black racism. Um, but we're also seeing how this, you know, as Rad mentioned, we're starting to turn it into potentially centering it again around our own guilt and shaming. And um, that's just what it is. You know, when you mention Lily's long preface, the thing that comes to my head is that that's her guilt. Yeah, you know, and, and she's, she's, she knows what she's, she's been contributing to. So she's that you see there is just the result of her guilt. And it just comes back to the work that we need to do internally as a community. Um, You know, the Black Lives Matter movement certainly benefits from this introspective discussion we've been having about what do we need to do uh, to combat anti-Black racism in our community, but that isn't what BLM is about. Like, yes, use your energy to have some discussions about how you can fix yourselves up in your community, but more than that, they need your energy to fight alongside them in solidarity with their liberation to eradicate white supremacy from our systems and our institutions. You know, the infighting that we're doing amongst ourselves, you know, while necessary for the progression of our communities, it can be distracting, and it is distracting, momentum that BLM is building up on a more system-wide level. Um, you know, both conversations are necessary, and they need to be had. Um, we need to come to terms with how we contribute to white supremacy by reinforcing it in our own anti-Black racist actions against that community, you know, whether it be through the conversations, you know, we We've been encouraged to have in our own homes, or with our friends, or through our microaggressions during our encounters with Black people. But there is an irony here. You know, we can see it through the intrinsic self-hate that we have within our community. You know, the uh deeming those fellow Thumls of darker complexions as being lesser than. But ironically, we're facing that same discrimination. You know, back home in Sri Lanka, by the Sinhalese Buddhist majority, and within the South Asian community. So uh, we need to like contextualize that, use that experience we had, you know, back home or within the South Asian community, to further support the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening here in the Western world. And you know, it's through that irony that we see the importance of why we need to stand up and support the Black Lives Matter movement
0: uh, mm-hmm. to its core. I'm I'm seeing a lot of I I, I think a lot of. The hesitancy to get behind the Black Lives Matter movement um, as a Tamil community is because, you know, I, I, I think the the common refrain is, like, "Well, what about us?" You know, like, "What about us?" Like, did we not did we not have forty thousand of our own die back home in May two thousand nine when and when we protested and we got up on the gardener and we were ple- like pleading um, for somebody to do something, um, and instead the media focused it on. Uh, how we were a disruption to their mother and and um, you know just a nuisance, really. So you know a lot. I think I, I feel like a lot of the town community um, is he, is maybe hesitating uh, for some reason to get behind us because they're saying, "Well, we have problems too," you know. Um, so what do you guys have to say to to that? Um,
3: let's hear from uh, you. I think yeah. Well, when we when we were having that moment, you know, when we were on the gardener and we had this feeling that we're here uh, crying out of desperation and the world is not listening. Should we then not understand what the black people are going through through that? You
1: know, 400 years.
3: Like exactly. (laughs) You know, like we're, we're both, we were, we knew that helpless feeling helplessness. And if anything, the way I look at it is like, I know that helplessness and, I have to do something or I'm going to encourage other people to show up. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think you have to be supporting uh, just because you support Black Lives Movement doesn't mean you still can't speak on Tamil subject matter. Right now, I think what's important, as uh, Roche mentioned, is momentum. Momentum is key right now, and it's like we have to keep like foot on the gas and what's happening. And you're seeing these companies slow baby steps. That there's some reform, but that comes from momentum. That comes from keeping the the conversation around what's happening to Black lives in America right now and worldwide. But right now, in terms of police brutality, and I think that momentum is important. And like. yeah, it's, it, it could, it's important not to have the conversation around ourselves, even though we had our struggles. It's, you know, uplifting the black community is in turn also uplifting our community. Like, when you bring up the person at the bottom of the totem, they are at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's why wouldn't we want to help the person at the bottom that's even lower than us on the social totem of racism, mm-hmm. right? So if we think that we've had it hard, we have to help that person, and in turn, it's it's a... We can't have a crabs in the bucket
1: mentality when it comes to being woke. Mm-hmm. right? That's
0: but, the thing I feel like, uh, go ahead,
1: man. Sorry, no, I just, cause I feel like, I mean, you just got reminded me like this, this, this whole, what about us conversation? I guess that was the root of MIA's comments back when, um, you know, she, when it was like the black lives matter, Super Bowl conversation. And I feel like I did kind of try to defend her or try to explain her reasoning. And now I wonder if I regret that. Um, but, like, you know, like, do, do you guys remember what I'm talking about? Like, the, like yeah, she, yeah. Was, she, she was interviewed. She was just trying to say, like, well, you know, like, I mean, black people, like, nobody ever talks about Muslim Lives Matters and stuff. And it's like, it is part of that. And she was doing that out of that same resentment that no one paid attention to, you know, the, the genocide. Right. Um, and, I mean, certainly I can sympathize with her frustrations throughout her career where she could not get people to pay attention to this issue. But once again, it's like even she is emblematic of our of us as a society where we cannot just lend that floor to these people in their moment of need because it's always we're always gonna have that kind of lingering trauma and always like trying to again center ourselves. I don't know if I have much more to add, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was just like yeah, just throwing in that one example that just occurred to me now.
0: For sure, you know, I, I draw I draw a strong distinction between the two issues only because you know. What happened in May two thousand nine? That that affected us in our identity as Tamils, right? Um, in a country that we don't live in, that we don't we don't participate in, because well, very clearly they didn't want us there, um, which is a sore point. It is a sore point. Like I think we all get frustrated and and remember that sense of helplessness thinking about that, right? But but well, what's this conversation is is affecting us and our identities as North Americans, as Canadians who contributed, who participated in this. Um, somehow we just inherently knew that we were better better off or had more opportunities simply because we weren't black. Yeah. And we operated off of that, right?
1: I, I think it's also interesting that we have our own Tamil culture month here in Canada. Um, you know, So we have the same amount, like the uh, Tamil culture month in Canada, the same way the black people have black history month in Canada. But Tamil people weren't enslaved by Canada. You know, like, so, like, black... There's a reason you have Black History Month. Black people in Canada were enslaved. They were brought here as slaves. It's part of Canadian history. And somehow we have managed, because of our political influence, we have managed an equal amount of that calendar space here in Canada. Um, so I think, you know, there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with us as a Tamil community for, for us to take up that amount of real estate on Canadian soil. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I would say, you know... Um... There's, there's this narrative that we have as, as a community here, having fled a war, long history of systematic oppression um, back home. Uh, and we did come here with, you know, racial trauma, PTSD, severe mental health issues. And we landed in the streets of Montreal, of Toronto, different parts of Toronto, amongst other marginalized and racialized populations. But as a community in Canada, we have been able to see some upward mobility. Uh, like Rad mentioned, you know, we have some political access um, that we've been able to do as a pretty small community, and to say that is purely a result of hard work would be completely ignorant. You know, while we have experienced uh, back home very overt and historical sort of uh, racism through policies, legislation, and violence, we entered a country um, with a system, a systematic historical uh, with tactics. That are embedded in government institutions that are centered around and against Black and Indigenous folks primarily. And that is our advantage, uh, right off the bat uh, over our brothers and sisters of the Black community. You know, we face our own barriers while operating in this racist system. Uh, you know, acknowledging that although on the face of it all, we may have seen success as a community, but there's still many of us on the outskirts of that narrative still, you know, facing incredible hardships in terms of socioeconomic status, access to resources for themselves and their families to make ends meet. We did not and presently do not have those same historical barriers in place that are holding us back. So, you know, while we can relate, again, cannot center ourselves around these events when we speak about it from a Canadian context. But, you know, back to the point, we do have a lot to benefit from ourselves by standing up for Black Lives Matters because we're fighting anti-black racism and anti-colonialism, two things that we experienced when we were back home, two things that pushed us out, um, you know. but now we're contextualizing ourselves to understand what does that mean when we're in Canada?
0: So. Right. Um, you know, I think this, I think for some people, I think that the pace at which this conversation hit them in the face kind of knocked the wind out of a few people, right? It's like it happened yeah. for like a weekend almost, and yeah. on Instagram, they're like, what is going on? right? Um, and because seemingly, you know, I think for the past five to ten years, we've we've been in this era of diversity and inclusion and, you know, saying all the right things and uh, we, we've been in that era for quite some time. You know, there are roles for it, there are positions for it. So seemingly on its face, everything seems just fine, right? Companies have statements saying they're they're not going to be racist and that we've been satisfied with that. Um, but, you know, that's the thing, Roach, to your point, like, if we could if we could so easily um, relegate our black um, counterparts to the back of the bus or deny them access to a movie theater just a few short decades ago, what what would people think that we wouldn't embed that same anti-black racism in our institutions uh, or in our hearts and minds that would deny them opportunities, right? Um, the reason I bring that up is because um, <clears throat> momentum, right? Momentum right. is one of the big ways that momentum is sustained, is in our working lives, right? Our industry—that's sure. where that's where a lot of change is going to is going to happen, I think. Um, and you know, we were talking about this a little bit before uh, before we got recording. It's just we've been—we didn't want to disrupt a system that seemed to be working for us. We didn't want to make anybody feel too comfortable. Um, we sure as hell didn't want to outrightly say that anybody was racist, you know. Um, and that can be a hard thing to do when. You know, the workplace allows you to wave away a lot of things as, oh, they didn't mean it, or I didn't mean it like that, but, um, you know, this has been a, I'm realizing a lot of things we're doing are unintentionally intentional, and that happens in the workplace quite a lot, so my question is, how do we, how do we address this, um, in industry?
3: Um, I I think an interesting, I was watching, um, just like a YouTube video about, um, how the Rosa Parks movement was so effective and how, um, you know, when black people stopped taking the bus, it was a collective movement to give up convenience. And I feel like a lot of people are, you know, anti-racist. They'll be like, yeah, I'm, I support diversity and uh, I'm not racist. But as soon as you fuck with their privilege or convenience, then they're truly like, ah oh, I, I, I don't know about this anymore. But it's like... Are you willing to sacrifice convenience? You know, and that goes against when we speak about these companies, like the absurdity of Amazon uh, supporting black lives is so many ways fucked up that I cannot even, like, fathom. And, you know, these companies, and I tweeted about this, but these companies are so quick to give these statements just companies, every company, fucking Wendy's, uh, Ben and Jerry, everyone's giving these statements. And, you know, a lot of these statements, it's not because they're invested in anti-black racism or fighting it. It's because they fear the stain of being called a racist disdain stain of it, but never actually being racist. Though, uh, the next week after they're posted their black fucking box, they're net back to their racist ways. The company still functions on white supremacy, anti-black racism. So it's like, how do we hold them accountable to actual change? How does that happen? Is,
0: is that, that an effective thing? tool, you know, um, just the fear of being slapped with the title of being a racist? Is that is an
3: I think it, I, think you, I guess you can shame people into action, but I, I don't know how, uh, how long that lasts. I don't know how long that
1: shame lasts. Yeah, so I think how- there's always a fear of retribution, maybe not immediately, but six months or a year down the road, like, when this mm-hmm. moment passes, if the momentum doesn't, like, really, like, if it doesn't bowl over 400 years of history, then you all have to deal with, like, what is your career going to mean six months or a year down the road when those white supremacist companies then were like, uh-huh, now, now, you remember that time? Well, no one remembers that time but us now.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, to that question of how how do you sustain this if it's, if it's, if it's just about shaming people and doing something in the moment, we all, as you said, that's not effective. This is about long-term momentum. How do we instill that in our respective industries and workplace and our lives? How do we do that?
2: You hire them. You hire them to, you hire the right people with the right perspectives, the right lived experiences. To be at that decision-making table, uh, one of the things that we're we're seeing a lot a lot of people give pressure to to companies about is you release a statement, but if I pull up the stats, your HR stats, they're telling me something different, mm-hmm. and you know I think it's 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 not about. Giving access to enter the company, but it's their mobility, their upward mobility into executive positions, into leadership positions that will actually result in long-term sustained change for the company. And, you know, sometimes it's about, you know, uh, being racialized, it's about your experiences, but it's also about how do we actually embody those values of being anti-racist and whatnot. So, You know, it's not about blind recruitment because that doesn't do anything for transformational change in the workplace, but it's about allowing them access to to enter your company, but then providing them mentorship, promotional opportunities, coaching, and actually retaining them and and building them up in their organization Um, because, you know, real systemic change doesn't stop at bringing them to the table. It's about what that conversation means once they're at the table so i i think that is that should be a focus of a lot of companies
3: mm-hmm. yeah i, I think but uh, like you're saying it's the it's the shift in power is essentially is is there's a power imbalance and like you're saying it's not enough for just to be invited to the table, but in a lot of these industries are black people in positions of serious power. And um, you know, that whole black square movement started, it was initially started from the music industry as like, hey, we're gonna just pause. I don't know what it was called, pause for the day. Um, but it's funny because the music industry is like I would say it's still like it still functions in very like slave-like methods in terms of owning Owning, literally owning the artists and their work. Just seem like there's there's institutions and industries like the NFL. Like the NFL is, I still look at it as like, is essentially just looks like an extension of slavery. That's what the NFL looks like from the outside. And the music industry is really no different. So it's kind of like, yeah, you can post these statements, but what does your actual company look like? And I'm just speaking on the industry that i participate participated in and I know, but like some of these contracts are despicable. Right. they have the, the, the power over these young black artists almost for their entire life. and these young black artists are signing away their life when they're young and they get tossed a hundred thousand grand in front of them you know And um, that industry is essentially just pillaging black culture, uh, all black lives essentially and not giving anything back. There's how many black executives are there? How many black label owners are there when you look at the three majors like Warner, Sony Universal, you know there's not many positions of power. And I yeah. think that's, there needs to be a shift in that power.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I feel like that's why, that's, what, that's why the black community is turning to us now. Um, after having to take that fight by themselves while well, we kind of looked away because it wasn't really affecting us. But now they're saying, "No, this is your problem, too. Um, and, I, and I wholeheartedly agree. I, I see this as a personal responsibility um, to make up for my, my cowardice in the past, really. The things I permitted to be said, um, the things I let slide, um, just being aware of the fact that, you know, the fact that I'm my first name is Jessica, I'm Catholic, I'm light-skinned, has given me certain advantages in law. And law has a real problem with a lack of diversity that they're not addressing. And and in law, it's because, you know, law firms are partnerships. They're, they're not public corporations. They're partnerships. And in that way, they can be very fraternal. Um, you know, anti-blackness can be masked in the the language of fit and culture, which is so part of the whole recruitment process. Um, It's no coincidence that you recruit after recruit after recruit. Um, We're not hiring black candidates, right? Um, So I see it as a personal responsibility uh, to call it by its name, systemic anti-black racism um, and the Black Lives Matter movement um, in all my workplace settings. Um, And it may cause discomfort. I may, I definitely have gotten awkward silences, But um, I'm happy to keep doing so because if this is going to be part of the conversation, I have to make it part of the conversation. Um, And, you know, I hope we can kind of do that going forward, right? Uh, Um,
1: I I wanted to speak to the whole, like, when Shan was talking about, like, kind of the workplace experience, too, because it's like... It's interesting how, you know, we can very easily be brought in to fill in the role of what you would expect a black person to take on. And we need to be aware of that. Because, I mean, I, certainly I've experienced, I, I am that guy that when I first came on to becoming a film critic, bear in mind my predecessor was Cameron Bailey. He was a black man at Now Magazine. Um, he's currently the head of TIFF. But when I came on, my first, Sorry?
0: And then you just came in right after. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Literally, like, he, Cameron Bailey bounced, and I, then it was me, right? So, but, um, so he's, but the thing is, my first assignment for Now Magazine was reviewing an Ice Cube movie. Anything black, send Rad. So you you see the function there, like and like um, you know, like I, like recently, I'm the one that interviewed Spike Lee. I'm the one that covers Carabana for Now Magazine. I'm the one that uh, you know, like like anything. I mean, it's not that Now Magazine never had black staff, but the as uh, film criticism in Canada and film coverage just basically there's no there's almost no people of color. So especially when there's. Uh, Things that have to do with black culture, any culture, they would uh, they uh, they would bring me in to host that Q and A and stuff, uh, as if I and you know, and I never even questioned. My ability to do that. I never questioned wh- whether I should be the one doing that. I was just like, "Yeah, fuck yeah, that's me." Of course, I should be doing it, right? Uh, it's only now that you know we 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 we're talking about that kind of intersection, like how like you know actually having black representation and stuff, and it's not good enough just to get some person of color to fill in your diversity quota, right? You need black and indigenous representation because those are very specific things. Oh, and also, yeah. by the way, I should add, even this last story, I was just telling you about the story I wrote about policing and black mental health why did i write that story right well i mean i can tell you now it doesn't have a freelance budget media is dead and so of course it fell on me but again like it's like that is the kind of thing where yeah yeah yeah, yeah, like i mean like i it shouldn't be me doing this stuff
0: yeah um yeah i think i think one thing um i totally agree that that representation is important i also think it's important not to let it be framed as something that we're some nice thing we're doing for the Black community. This is not some nice thing that we're just doing for the Black community. This is intentionally to address our unconscious bias uh, and systemic anti-Black racism. Um, because you know, I think a lot in, in in the initial parts of this whole this whole wave, there was a lot of you know, we got to help Black people and they need us, and you know, let's help them out, and and. Doing so sounds nice and great, but it deflects personal responsibility, personal an understanding of our personal role. Um, so I think that framing is is really important, um, and and being vocal about it, being vocal about it. You know, discomfort is a good thing. I think beautiful things come out of discomfort. Um, I call this a psychological revolution because I I truly believe it is. We, like, I think it's all this requires is. The opposite of inaction is what we've been doing for so long. Um, just a change of mindset, and all—I really, truly believe that all it's going to do is make us freer, all of us. Um, and why wouldn't you want that, right? Um, well, those are my personal final thoughts on. Um, yeah. um, what are what are all of your? If you're if you had parting words uh, for the town community that's watching today, um, a final message. What would um, that
3: be? I think I, I think for me it's. You know, us uh, participating in the fight, not just as as Tamil people, as people is the least we can do. So there's no patting yourself on the back for showing up. I mean, it's the least. There are people being killed, literally killed, families being, you know, shattered. So it's the least we can do for the sake of our brothers and sisters and humanity and just the upliftment of people. And um, I think right now it's important to... Um, address what's happening head on. We need to take a step back, decenter ourselves from the conversation. And one thing I think we all need to do is think about how to contribute in an effective way and in a purposeful way, because I think a, a lot of people are pointing fingers of how you're participating in this fight. But, you know, like in a, in a war, you would never place the archers in the front because they're, they only work long distance. And I feel like all of us have a particular gift or a power or a skill set that we can contribute, and we need to focus on that and how that could be useful in this fight. Instead of, you know, all of us don't have to be doing the same thing. Like It's better that some people stay off social media, you know? And it's better, like, some people are very informative and great curators of information, and they should be on social media. So I think it's a time to reflect on how you can, personally contribute, and how you could also give up a lot of your personal conveniences long-term for the fight. For sure. Um,
0: Roche, what's your final message to the people?
2: Uh, get used to being uncomfortable um, and really assuming the role of being that person uh, is something I've said a lot. You know, I saw somewhere that you, you, you can't be anti-racist and conflict-avoidant. You know, you're, you, it's something that you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to deal with the conflict, the uncomfortable conversations, the awkward silences uh, you're going to get from all your, your, your white colleagues or uh, racist colleagues or what have you. Um, but, you know, I really, really push you to, to be that person. Um, you know, I always say, like, and a lot of people might agree, like, being humble, like, it's in, your, it's in your blood to be fighters. Um, but now, now is not your time, but it will benefit you in the long run. Not that you should be doing something because there is a benefit for you, but just understand, you know, the role you play in terms of how you contribute to it and also how fighting this fight will have benefits for everybody, for the greater good. Maybe not for white people, but it's about time, right? Um, But so that would be sort of the thing that I encourage to them
1: Dad, why don't you close us off? Uh, I hate this task because these guys have like such great quotes, and I don't have that kind of stuff, like quote material. <laughs> you know what? I just wanna, I wanna, I wanna bring up a fact that I, I mean, like, so I only have one more kind of point to bring out that maybe should have been a uh, message earlier. It's not exactly a great closing thought, but whatever. I'm gonna close with it anyway. We have to recognize our privilege, and I know that a lot of us will be like, "What? What privilege? I struggled or whatever, right?" But I mean, just as an example, you were talking earlier about. Black people are 20 times more likely to die at the hands of police. You know, we've seen these stats. We've seen them literally within the last month. DeAndre Campbell, Regis Korchinski-Prakat, these people who have died when police came into their situations. I want to go back to that period where Tamil people were all over the news because of their gang wars and stuff, right? Going back to 99. Not one of those people died at the hands of police. And they were stalking the police's homes, they were taking down their license plates, those Tamil gangsters back then. They were taking down their license plates, following them to their homes, doing all that kind of behavior, and yet even they did not get killed by police. So we have a certain amount of privilege, and we get we get a certain uh, benefit of the doubt when we interact with police that black people do not afford. So we do have to recognize our privilege. For
0: yeah. sure. That's not privilege. No. Yeah. To to just have access to your life, to just be able to live freely, best on privilege, I really don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, guys. Can I take a deep breath? Let's take a deep breath. (laughs) (sighs) I must feel a little lighter after this conversation. I think, like I said, I think checking ourselves um, is important and coming to this understanding individually, but also as a community, is is part of that process. So, um, thank you guys for being here. Thank you. John, Vincent, and Paul.
1: Brad. Thanks for having um, me. Yeah, for sure. Yes. This is great.
0: And uh, thanks everybody for joining us,
1: and we will see you soon. Alright. Peace, guys. See you guys. Wait, am I supposed to wait here? You... I thought
0: we were... <laughs> no, it's, done. it's done. It's done.
2: Oh, it's was I
1: supposed to do a Peace, guys, too? <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> it's not
0: recording. Okay? <laughs> I'm
1: going to cut the recording at that part, okay?
0: <laughs> uh, Alright. Good concept. Yeah, then that's what you guys think.
3: Yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. I think we I think it's necessary for us to continuously have these conversations with our community and Yeah. Mm. And learn from each other.
1: For sure. I think um, you have to like cut out some of my stumbling bits. I guess I think you guys were a little I mean I wasn't very prepared for this in any case, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> No, I thought you were fine. I thought no. it was fine. I think the yeah. more no. candid
1: is the better. So no. I appreciate your guys' perspective. Yeah,
0: yeah, yours too, for real. Oh, likewise. Uh, yeah, I think I hope you
1: get a lot out of this. So Jess, uh, when just, when does this come out?
0: Um, probably sooner rather than later. I know, you know, it's a timely topic, so, um, it's not going to require, I don't think that much editing, so, okay. I would say within the week, week
1: and a half. Okay,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. All right. Oh, it was nice meeting you guys. Nice this is great. Yeah. I honestly know all of you. <laughs> 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 but, um, yeah. Too bad we couldn't meet in person, this it's
1: been great. Yeah. After yeah. right. COVID.
0: All
2: right. <laughs> Alrighty. All, all
1: right, right guys. See you guys. And I'll talk Bye-bye. to you later.
2: Good, you night.
1: good night.